You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. We have a tradition in our house. In fact, it's one of the questions on the, on the sermon outline. What are you thankful for? I think is right on there. Supposed to be. Yeah, there it is, right at the bottom. What are three things you're thankful for? Uh, we have this tradition in our house at Thanksgiving. Before we can eat the meal, we go around the table and say something that we're thankful for. We also do this uh, in our, as part of our bedtime routine with our kids. Uh, when we tuck them in, what are you grateful for today? Uh, and, and we do this around food often, right? We give thanks for the meal. And giving thanks, thanksgiving, is a good practice. It's a good ritual that we have. And I'm so glad that we've set aside a time in our year to give thanks. Giving thanks is something that we're actually instructed to do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You wonder what God's will is? When I was a youth pastor, I had lots of questions about what is God's will for my life? And Paul tells us, at least in part, his will for your life is that you would be thankful. Be thankful. In all circumstances, that's a huge statement, right? What does that mean? In our gatherings this month, we're going to be talking a little bit about what that means and how do, we, how do we live that out practically. And if you'd like to be part of that conversation, you can join a gathering by signing up online or through the church app, and we'd love to include you in that. Or come to our open table gathering next Sunday after the service, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But God's will is that you, we, would be thankful And while I think that an attitude of gratitude is is generally good, I want to challenge us, invite us, in fact, to go a little bit further this morning and this weekend. We were talking about this in the office, and and we kind of have this statement of like, I'm so thankful. We hear it in our culture, right? I'm I'm just so thankful. And it seems incomplete. And almost everybody that I talked to in the office, particularly those who had children, immediately compared it to the incomplete apology that we so often hear. I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. In our house, we kind of have gotten out of the practice of this, but we used to ask our kids a series of questions when they said, I'm sorry. For what? And why was it wrong? And will you do it again? And they wanted to say yes, but the right answer was no. They knew that. And I want to ask similar questions when somebody says, I'm just so thankful. To whom? For what? And our psalm gives us a guide for gratitude right at the very beginning. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to whom? The Lord. For what? For he is good. His love endures forever. And then the psalmist invites us to take it a step further and to give thanks out loud. Verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the, of the foe. 
Young adults under the leadership of Will Brzozowski have adopted this verse, verse two, as their theme for this semester. Where do we see the redemptive work of God in our lives, in our stories? And where's God freeing us and restoring us? And he's invited young adults to share their story and to see God's hand at work. And this is exactly what the psalmist is inviting his congregation to consider. It's almost like he's standing at the front of his congregation and he's looking out into the audience and he sees people and it reminds them of their story and he starts telling their story for them. Verse four, some of you wandered in desert wastelands finding no way to a city where you could settle. Verse, verse 10, some sat in darkness and utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains. Verse 17, some became fools. Now, maybe he wouldn't point at particular people in this one, but some became fools through the rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. In verse 23, some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. And I think from these four stories that the psalmist starts for his congregation, we can learn four lessons about giving thanks. And the first one is this, we will experience trouble in different ways. We will experience trouble in different ways. Trouble will come. And I don't think I need to convince you of this. I think most of you get this, at least intellectually. And yet, I find myself, when trouble comes my way, even the most minuscule little inconvenience, I start to protest. Like, why me? I deserve better than this. Trouble will come. Every story the psalmist tells in this psalm includes some sort of trouble. Some are lost in the desert with no place to call home. They're hungry and they're thirsty. Some are stuck in prison in the dark, bound up by chains. Some are sick and dying. Some are caught up in storms in in, in the middle of the ocean and they're anxious. They're even terrified. We will experience trouble in various ways. And the psalmist indicates that sometimes our trouble is caused by our rebellion and sin. Verse 10, some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. Verse 17, some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. There are times when trouble is God's discipline. And when I say that, I want to immediately offer two cautions. First, we should not equate discipline with punishment. All throughout history, all throughout God's dealings with his people, God's discipline has been redemptive and corrective, not punitive. It's more like discipleship than punishment, to direct us back to the right path, to to lead us back into obedience, to recognize who God is. The author in Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. They, talking about human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, 
It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's discipline is redemptive and corrective. It is not punitive. And that word trained actually takes us back to the beginning of the chapter 12 in Hebrews where the author is using the analogy of running a race. He says, we are all running a race and the picture is that God is our coach who helps us, who trains us to run as fast as we can, as well as we can, as long as we can. So we should not equate discipline with punishment. And second, We should not be too quick to connect trouble to discipline. Sometimes trouble is God's discipline. But there's no indication in story number one and story number four that they are being disciplined. These are things that just seem to happen to them. The story of Job reminds us of this. Job, who lost everything, he lost his health, he lost wealth, he lost his family members, and immediately his friends started to say, something that you have done has caused this thing, these things to happen to you, and you need to repent. And the story of Job reminds us that there may be something happening in the spiritual sphere that we have no idea about. John chapter 9, we have another example. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they see a man who's been born blind and the disciples immediately assume that this is God's discipline on either the man or his parents for something that they have done. And Jesus corrects them because trouble isn't always discipline. It's frequently, almost always, at least a revealing It often exposes things that are hidden. Job's trouble exposed the false theology of his friends and of the surrounding culture. That when you do wrong, God will punish you. And if you are in trouble, it's because you've done something wrong. The blind man's trouble, his blindness in John 9, revealed the disciples' false theology that that every time there is trouble in the world, it must be because they are being punished or disciplined for something that they have done. It also revealed God's glory. In fact, that's the reason Jesus said the man was born blind, so that God's glory might be seen. And this psalm reminds us that we will face trouble of various kinds, and that trouble sometimes may be training and discipline, but it's almost always, almost certainly a revealing, an opportunity to see our world more clearly and see God more clearly. Second lesson for giving thanks. We should cry out to the Lord when we are in trouble. Lord, help me is an acceptable prayer to God whenever we are in trouble. Even when the trouble is a direct result of our sin and our rebellion. In each of the four stories that the psalmist tells, there's this phrase. We have the example of it in verse 6, which was read for us. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. We find it again in story 2, verse 13, story 3, verse 19, and story 4, verse 28. Word for word, they When they were in trouble, they cried out to the Lord, even when their trouble was caused by their sin and rebellion, and God delivered them. 
This echoes what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise is that when we cry out to God when we're in trouble, that in the psalm he delivers them, he might not change our circumstances immediately. We know that from the rest of the story of scripture. But we will receive a peace that completely defies understanding. People won't get it when they look at you. How can you be so content? How can you be so at peace? How can you have joy even in the midst of this trouble that you're going through? It transcends all understanding. And again, I don't feel like I need to convince you of this, that we should cry out to God when we're in trouble. We just need to do it. Even if the trouble is a direct result of your sin and rebellion, turn to God. Cry out to the Lord in your trouble. Third lesson we can learn from Thanksgiving is that we can count on the Lord's enduring love and goodness in concrete ways specific to our trouble. The same pattern occurs in all four stories. We have the trouble, verse four. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They cry out to the Lord in verse Uh, Six, and then we see the result, verse seven. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. They were wandering, they needed help, God provided a straight path. They needed a place to call home, God gave them a city that they could settle in. We see the same pattern in the second story. They're in darkness and chains, and it's their own fault, verse 10. They cry out to the Lord, and God brings them out of darkness and breaks their chains, verse 14, specific to their trouble. In the third story, they're so sick that they can't even stand the thought of food and they're about to die and it's their own fault. It's a direct result of their rebellion and foolishness. They cry out to the Lord and verse 20, the Lord heals them and rescues them from the grave. It's like the grave is this giant mouth that's about to swallow them whole and God goes, nope, not yet and moves them away, specific to their trouble. The fourth story, some are stuck in a storm in the middle of the sea and they're completely at the mercy of the waves, no hope of getting to a safe harbor. Verse 23 to 27, he takes several verses to make sure we really feel the angst of what's going on. And then they cry out to the Lord, he rescues them by stilling the storm and calming the waves. He gives them exactly what they need in their situation. God doesn't send food to the sick, right? They don't need food. They can't even stand the thought of food. He doesn't stop the wind from battering the the walls of the prison. That's not what they need. No, he responds in concrete ways specific to their situation. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 11 and 12. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He's emphasizing that, that when our kids come to us and ask us for something that we need, we as human parents do our best to give them something specifically that they need. He's, over, he's using hyperbole. We wouldn't give them something evil when they ask for something good. But 
but we also don't want to give them just something that's good, but not good for the situation. How much more will our Father in heaven, who is completely good, give us what we need in the specific situation we're in? His enduring love and goodness show up in concrete ways specific to our situation. And they don't always show up how and when we want them to. I'm sure that the Jewish people in exile, for whom this psalm was written as they came out of exile, I'm sure they wish that God didn't wait 70 years for him to rescue them. I'm sure that God's people under the Roman occupation in the time of Jesus wished that the Lord's enduring love and goodness would show up in a concrete way by overthrowing the Roman government and giving them political freedom again. But God knew that while that is what they wanted, what they needed was freedom from the power of sin and death in their lives. This is the ultimate good gift. In fact, if we finish that paragraph in Luke 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? If you then, verse 13, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit, the ultimate good gift to those who ask him? This rescue from sin and death is the ultimate demonstration of of what is good. It's the ultimate demonstration of the Lord's enduring love and goodness. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Are you lost and directionless? The Lord shows his enduring love and goodness by sending his son to find you and to give you purpose and direction for your life. Are you a slave? Are you bound up by sin and death? You can't escape. The Lord demonstrates his enduring love and goodness to you by sending his son to rescue you, to break the chains, bring you light and freedom. Were you sick? Was your soul sick? The spiritual food has no attraction to you. The Lord shows his enduring love and goodness by sending his son to heal you, to make you completely whole and give you strength. Were you caught in a storm? No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't see any way out of it. You couldn't seem to escape the waves. The Lord shows his enduring love and goodness by sending his son to bring you peace and to guide you to safety. And all you have to do is cry out, Lord, help me, and he saves you. And what happens to you spiritually will also be completed physically and relationally and emotionally and in every possible way that you can think of when Jesus comes back, we'll experience this fully. And and sometimes in our lifetime, the the kingdom breaks through, heaven and earth collide and and God's enduring love and goodness is, is experienced by us in concrete action specific to our situation in, in miraculous ways. But even if not, Even if we have to wait 
It means we will experience God's enduring love and goodness in concrete ways, specific to our situation. We will. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. So even if our rescue is not yet fully realized, if it's not yet fully experienced by us, we should respond, and this is the fourth lesson of giving thanks from this psalm, we should respond by giving thanks for the Lord's enduring love and goodness. In all four stories, the psalmist calls for thanksgiving. Verse eight, for example, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, repeated word for word in verse 15, story two, verse 21, story three, and verse 31, story four. The the psalmist wants us to be thankful, to have an attitude of thanksgiving, and he wants us to express it or complete it by giving thanks, an action of thanksgiving. And he wants our expression of thanks to be as specific as the Lord's action of rescue. Imagine for a moment, go back to our Thanksgiving tradition. We're sitting at the table, and instead of me being the host, the psalmist is the host of our Thanksgiving meal, and we're going around the table saying what we're thankful for, and it gets to my turn, and I say, I give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and wonderful deeds for mankind. Sounds good, right? Like, I give thanks to who? The Lord. For what? His unfailing love and wonderful deeds to mankind. I've completed the sentence, and not only that, I sound so spiritual. (laughs) Right? I'm ready for a pat on the back, and the psalmist doesn't let me get away with it. In two of the stories, he essentially asks the question, where specifically have you seen the Lord's unfailing love and wonderful deeds to mankind? Tell me the story. Because the Lord's unfailing love and goodness show up in concrete ways to our specific situation. So how specifically have you seen it? Verse eight, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. That sounds really nice. For specifically, He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Repeats the pattern, verse 15. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For, specifically, he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Where specifically have you seen his love and his goodness? And then in the last two stories, his instruction changes. He asks the, qu- the question in story one and two is, where specifically have you seen the Lord's unfailing love and wonderful deeds to mankind? In qu- the question in story three and four is, and now how are you going to express thanks? How are you going to give thanks for the Lord's unfailing love and wonderful deeds to mankind? Verse 21 Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind by, right, here's the instruction, let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. And basically the same thing, verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. How? 
Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Really what he does is at the end of these last two stories, he takes us back to the beginning of the psalm. Verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Let them express it out loud how God has shown his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds to you specifically and then tell other people about it. I love how the psalmist ends this psalm. He tells the four stories about people needing rescue and being rescued and how they should give thanks to the God. And then he kind of generalizes for a few verses about how God works reversals and redemption in various ways to reveal his righteousness in our world. And then he closes with these words, verse 43. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. It's kind of unfinished, isn't it? It's kind of a, an invitation. Here's how God has worked in four stories. Here's how he kind of generally works in our world. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. If you're wise, he's kind of saying, you'll get it. This reminds me of a joke that I see regularly. There are two types of people in the world. Those who can't extrapolate from incomplete data. If you're type two, you might need to explain it to the type ones in the room. I'll give you a minute. Psalmist kind of does the same thing to us, doesn't he? Here's the pattern. Some of you have gotten in trouble. You cried out to the Lord. He rescued you. Now give him thanks. Let the one who is wise consider these things. Where are you in the pattern? What's your next step? Are you in trouble? Then cry out to the Lord. Has he rescued you? Give thanks. To whom? For what? He ends essentially with an invitation to join the redeemed of the Lord by giving thanks telling your story, exalting God together in the assembly, in the congregation. And we're going to do that. We're going to close our service by exalting God together in song. But I also encourage you to tell your story of God's enduring love and goodness as part of your giving thanks around your tables and in your living rooms this weekend, this Thanksgiving weekend. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. How specifically have you seen it? And how specifically can you express thanks to him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for you are good and your love endures forever. We've seen your goodness in the work of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate demonstration of goodness and love, the ultimate gift. And we recognize, Heavenly Father, that we owe you our thanks. But more than owe, we want to give you our thanks because you deserve it. You're good. And you've done such good things for us. And so over this weekend, around our tables and in our family groups, would you remind us of how specifically we've seen your enduring love and goodness. And may we give you thanks by telling that story to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.